Joshua chapter 10, and we got the first half of chapter 10 done last week. What happened was the Gibeonites fooled Israel into making a covenant with them, and it naturally just ticked everybody off, except the Gibeonites who were happy about it. So then Gibeon is sitting right in the middle of the saddle of Benjamin, and it's a major city on a major set of crossroads. So you have crossroads going north and south and crossroads going east and west go through there. So it's a large strategic city. So what then happened was the kings in the south, Jerusalem, Hebron, and so forth, all got together and headed up to try and take out Gibeon The idea being that they didn't want Israel on that saddle, and if Gibeon was going to be an ally of Israel, they didn't want them up there either. So they go up and they besiege Gibeon, and Gibeon sends messengers down to Joshua, who is in Gilgal, uh, down in the Jordan Valley, and says, we're being attacked, and we have a covenant with you, so we need your help. Joshua marches all of his army, a little short of 20 miles, all night uphill. It was about a 2,000 foot elevation gain. So most any army after a 20 mile forced march uphill like that would just as soon sit down and relax a little bit before they actually fought anybody. But Israel goes straight into battle and they rout the combined armies of these southern kings and they chase them down the Beth Haran Ridge route, and God, of course, fights for them with a large hailstorm. You can either read that as hailstones, as in a big thunderstorm, or you could also read it as meteorite kind of things. I've heard it taught both ways. I obviously wasn't there. I have no idea. I sort of lean toward a hailstorm. So at this point, they have chased them off of the central ridge and the remnants of the armies have finally gotten back into their cities and as part of that the five commanders kings if you will of the five major cities that joined together for this battle were captured and were salted away in a cave at Makeda rocks and a guard piled up ahead of them. So now we are at the point where we're going to get those kings out and deal with them. So we're in Joshua chapter 10, and we'll pick it up at verse 16. These five kings fled and hid themselves in a cave at Makeda. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in a cave at Makeda. Joshua said, roll large stones across the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies, attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities. For the Lord your God has given them into your hand. Then Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out. And when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makeda. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. In other words, all of the Canaanite cities in the area were shut in. So everybody has pulled back into their fortified cities. They've closed the gates. That's sort of what I take. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. 
that's what I believe is going on. Everybody has gone back into his city, closed the gates, and are hoping either to weather the storm or if they get attacked, to defend themselves. The instructions from Joshua is don't let them enter their fortified cities because once they get into their fortified cities, they're going to be that much more difficult to dig out. So now we're down to verse 22. Then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so and brought those five kings out from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Yarmouth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they had brought these kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And in biblical times, all the way up certainly to Rome, and probably later when somebody got conquered, Typically, the chieftains or the kings or the generals or whatever were brought back to the city and paraded. For example, there's a bas-relief, I want to say maybe in the London Museum, I don't remember, but it shows the Roman army returning from the conquest of Jerusalem, and they're carrying the menorah and all that kind of stuff. So the idea that the conquering army and the conquering general would make a spectacle of the ones he has conquered goes all the way back through history. And the idea of putting your foot on the neck indicates that obviously they are conquered and subservient to you and are no longer of any danger. And the idea here is they just fought a great battle. Daylight was extended. They've been fighting all day. Probably, I would imagine, from the time they left their camp at Gilgal until now has been 24 hours or better. So at this point, they are probably just a bit tuckered. And the idea here is that by putting the commander's feet on the necks of these kings, what it's doing is showing everybody we can beat all these guys. So it's by way of humiliating the enemy and robbing them of their morale, and it's also by way of increasing the morale of the Israelites. Verse 26, And afterwards Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees. And they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remains to this very day. As for Makeda, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, and he did to the king of Makeda as he had done to the king of Jericho. So the flow of the battle, if you will, is we start up here at Gibeon, which is right in the middle of the Saddle of Benjamin. Gilgal on this particular map is on the upper right-hand corner, march up out of the Jordan Valley to the top of the saddle, routes the kings and sends them down this Beth Haran Ridge route. And I said last time, if you look at a modern map of Israel, here's Jerusalem, and you've got two roads into Jerusalem. This is Route 1. Most of you go to Jerusalem that way. And then you have a road that comes out of Jerusalem, goes down the ridge here, and I suspect goes on out to Tel Aviv, and I don't know what that route number is. And what they did is they chased the armies of the five kings down this ridge out onto the flat, 
and then harassed them all the way down as these guys were trying to get back to their cities. Uh, on this map, the cities that they started from are in blue. Okay, so there's Yarmouth, there's Lachish, Eglon, Hebron, and Jerusalem. So they concentrated at Jerusalem, if you will, and then marched down the ridge from Jerusalem. And then as they got driven back, they were trying to get back into their cities. And the pursuit ended here at Makeda, which is just slightly north and east of Eglon. And that's where the cave is, where they've got them. And then once they have dispatched the five kings here at Makeda, he turns around and he takes Makeda itself. And then what he's going to do is he's going to start going around and policing up all of the remaining cities down there. The narrative is he went and took this city, then he went and took that city, then he went and took the next city. So there isn't a lot of either military detail or narrative involved in the rest of it. 1029. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Makeda to Libna and fought against Libna. And Libna is out on the flat, slightly north and west of Hebron and south and west of Jerusalem. 31. And Joshua and all Israel with him had passed from Libna to Lachish and laid siege to it and fought against it. And the Lord gave Lachish into the hand of Israel. And he captured it on the second day and struck it with the edge of the sword, every person in it, as he had done to Libna. And again, Lachish is virtually straight west of Hebron, again, out on the flat. 33. Then Holham, king of Gezer, and Gezer is clear up here, which is directly west of Gibeon. So 33. Then Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish. And Joshua struck him and his people, and he left none remaining. Then Joshua and all of Israel with him passed from Lachish to Eglon. And Eglon is south and west of Makeda. And I have no idea why he's taking them in this order, by the way. Well, actually, maybe I do. Because he started off here at Makeda, and he's going out, and he's picking up these cities on the flat, if you will. And he gets attacked, essentially, from his rear from the north. So that turns him, and he has to deal with that. And then he turns back. So this bouncing around may not all be of his own choosing. He may be reacting to the military situation. So 36. Then Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron. And they fought against it and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and its king and its towns. And every person in it, he left none remaining as he had done to Eglon and devoted it to destruction every person in it. Notice it says Hebron and its towns. From that you can infer Hebron is a fairly large city, that it's got outlying towns around it that are part of the king of Hebron's territory. 38. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned back to Debir and fought against it. And Debir is down south and a little bit west of Hebron on the central ridge. 40. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country of the Negev, and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. So this is a slightly expanded map of the south. And to orient you, you can see Hebron is down at the bottom edge here. Lachish, Jerusalem. 
So Gaza is out here, which is where Gaza is today. So as we're talking about cities down here in the Negev, they're off the bottom of my chart. But Gaza is as far south as I go. 41. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all those kings in their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. So he's still maintaining his military camp, if you will, at Gilgal. And again, to orient you, Gilgal here is down in the Jordan Valley, slightly north and east of Jericho. One of the things that's going to happen is, for example, he's not going to take Ashkelon. So you're going to have Canaanite and later Philistines remain on that flat because they're not going to take them and subdue them. So the map I'm flipping up now is going to be the northern campaign, which is going to start here in chapter 11. So when Yabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent to Yobab, king of Madden, and the king of Shimron, and the king of Akshaf, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and in the Arabah south of Kinneron, in the lowland, and in Nephath-Nor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. So, to sort of get you oriented here, Hazar is right there, which is just south of Lake Hula, which is the bottom end of the valley that runs up through central Lebanon, which is the Bekaa Valley in, in today's Poland. Hazar is a major fortress city, as is Beth Shan. If you look south of the Sea of Galilee, along the western edge of the plain of the Jordan, you see Beth Shan. And the thing about Beth Shan is if you look at it, you can see that you have uh, lots of roots coming up out of the Jordan River and into the Jezreel Valley through Beth Shan. So Beth Shan is a major military fortress. Hazor is a major city. You'll notice that some of the towns I read, like Oxoth and, and Meadows and so forth, have got question marks beside them. And so the map maker has just sort of said, nah, I think that may be where it was. Now, one of the things that I find just fascinating about this particular part of the campaign is the fact that all these folks gathered here at Marom. And Marom, you can see, is directly west of Lake Hula. And it's in high country. Now, one of the things that we're going to see as we read about the battles is that this particular army has got lots and lots of horses and chariots. And if you've got lots and lots of horses and chariots, it seems weird to me that you would be up in this hill country here. You really want to be down on the flat. You all remember the book of Judges, the story of Deborah. All of the action takes place on this Jezreel Valley or the plain of Estrelon. And you've got Mount Tabor and so forth. And the Israelites get up on top of the mountain and attack down onto the chariots. What they really don't want to do is they don't want to meet chariots out in this flat because Israel is dismounted infantry. So the thing that I do not understand is why you would concentrate a chariot army up here at Marom instead of concentrating your chariot army somewhere down here on the flat. 
I just don't understand that. But they did what they did, and so we just have to deal with it. But anyway, as you're looking at the map here, you see Hazor is in this valley that's got Lake Hula in it, and you got Mount Hermon up here on the upper right-hand side of the map, and you've got major trade routes that come right down this valley and through Hazor. And this is the route from Damascus that goes out to the east of Hazor. So Hazor is a major, major operation. It's a big city. And Beth Shan, down here, south of the Sea of Galilee, is similarly a big deal. It's a fortress city because all of these trade routes go right through there, and they sit astride the wadi that goes up into the Jezreel Valley. And once you come up into the Jezreel Valley, you can then go south down the ridge, or you can come through Megiddo and go south down the coastal plain. So those are two major strategic cities in the land. Eleven four, And they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number, like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Moron to fight with Israel. So the big deal is that they've got lots of horses and chariots, which is my surprise, if you will, that they use Moron as their rallying camp because that isn't really chariot country up there so much as it is slightly south of there. So verse 6, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. For tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. That makes sense because he's got dismounted infantry. So getting his infantry up there and falling on them while they're in camp makes a great deal of sense. You don't want them to get out on the plain where their chariots can get up ahead of steam. Verse 8 maybe. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as Great Sidon and Misrepothmaim, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Now, it would seem to me that if you could take their horses intact, that would be a valuable asset. So I am assuming that this burn their chariots and hamstrung their horses is something that happens in the course of the battle, not necessarily after the victory where they go round up all the horses and just wantonly slaughter them. But I don't know that. Verse 10, And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with a sword, for Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. I said earlier that Hazor here south of Lake Hula is, in fact, a major city, and it is the royal city, if you will, of this whole area. So the king of Hazor has brought his subordinate kings together in, in their armies. Verse 11, And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoted them to destruction. There was nothing left that breathed, and he burned Hazor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn, except Hazor alone, that Joshua burned. I'm not sure what cities standing on mounds is. I am sort of assuming it's fortress cities, as opposed to little farming villages. 
So I'm assuming it's places like Bethshan, these major strategic cities, he did not destroy any of them except Hazor itself, which is the capital city. Everything else, he left the infrastructure intact, although he killed all of the people. Remember, one of the things that God promises Israel when they're in the wilderness is that you will get cities that you did not build, and you will live in houses that you did not build. So if you're destroying everything, that promise sort of goes by the wayside. So the idea that Hazor and Jericho are the two that he completely flattens, but I'm assuming that he then captures the infrastructure on other things because Israelites need a place to live and they're fighting right now, they're not building. So at the end of the campaign, they're going to need some place to live. So verse 14, And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every man they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. And they did not leave any who breathed, just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant. So Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded Moses. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country and all the Negev and all the land of Goshen and the lowland and the Arabah. The Jordan River Valley is called the Arabah and the Dead Sea is called the Sea of the Arabah. So 16 again. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country and all the Negev and all the land of Goshen and the lowland of the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and its lowland from Mount Halak which rises towards Seir as far as Baal God in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon and captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. So the sense of that then is none of these people surrendered because God hardened their hearts. 21. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country from Hebron from Debir, from Manab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. So the Anakim, I believe, are giants, and he takes them all out. 22. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod are all in the south. So here's a map of the south, and you have Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod. So the idea there is he takes all the giants out except those in the coastal cities, and we are going to see them again when we get to the story of Goliath. And interestingly enough, how many brothers did Goliath have? Four brothers. So David took five stones. He was ready for all of them. Twenty-three. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. Now, what's going to happen next is we're going to have several chapters of real estate where he lays out what each tribe gets and the boundaries and all that. We're going to have a list by name and city of all the kings that they took out 
with your permission, I'm going to skip all that. As I say, it's a real estate document, and it's very important, but I don't have anything special to say for it. So we'll skip all that, and then we'll pick up the end of Joshua's life and so forth, because there's a bunch of stuff there that is worthy of studying.